Welcome to Onco Farm. I'm your host, John Bazaar. I am a professor of pharmacy practice here at the supporting sponsor of Onco Farm, the ETSU Bill Gadd College of Pharmacy. It is, uh, you know, late March 2022, and, uh, you know, a couple new drugs approved. Uh, I think it's Relatamab, something, Relatamib, Relatamab, and uh, was approved for melanoma, a lag 3 inhibitor. Uh, anyway, there, there are a couple new approvals. We'll get to those in coming weeks because those drugs are, are newly approved, probably not uh, on the market yet. But we do have a practice changing study to talk about. That is Destiny Breast 03, published this week in the New England Journal of Medicine. This is trastuzumab drextacan in HER2 versus trastuzumab imtanzine, Kate in metastatic HER2 amplified breast cancer in patients who have received at least one prior trastuzumab-containing regimen. Um, either in the metastatic setting in most of the cases or, or even in the neoadjuvant setting, I think it was within six weeks they, they progressed or had disease recurrence. Uh, this is a study that we talked about uh, some point last year. It was presented, I think, maybe at ESMO, um, maybe at ASCO, and had really striking, I mean, a huge magnitude of benefit in the progression-free survival. Um, and I, I think that a lot of folks maybe changed their practice at that point. We now have the publication, and it's probably time to change practice. So let's go through this Destiny Breast 03, and in coming weeks we'll get to the, the, the new chemical agents that have been approved uh, uh, this week. So, uh, trastuzumab drugstacan or in HER2, currently its FDA approval is in the third line setting for metastatic breast cancer after failure uh, of two or more HER2 uh, containing regimens. Uh, the implication then being that you get trastuzumab plus or minus pertuzumab, then you get trastuzumab and tanzine, and then you get trastuzumab drugstacan. Now, drugstacan's approval is, um, is an accelerated approval, and of course, I would have to assume that that will be, be they'll be granted full approval and an updated indication. Uh, I would think soon, since this has now been been published. Maybe a maybe a little more the FDA wants to see, which we'll talk about uh, at the end. Uh, so trastuzumab, Durextecan, um, these are both antibody drug conjugants. The Durextecan is a topoisomerase one inhibitor, uh, slightly different than than SN38, which is in uh, sacituzumab, Govatecan. And then trastuzumab imtanzine, which is a microtubule inhibitor. We've known this as TDM1 for more than a decade. This drug has been around. It, its uh, current role in therapy, or place in therapy, was based on the Amelia study, which was published about 10 years ago in the New England Journal of Medicine. It beat out lapatinib and capecitabine, uh, which is a regimen if you're a new practitioner in, in the breast space, you probably haven't used that a whole lot uh, these days. So these were about 500 patients, randomized one to one to either trastuzumab drugstacan or uh, trastuzumab tanzine. If you look at the dosing of these, the trastuzumab in both of these should weigh the same, uh, but it's like 5.4 mg per kg of drugstacan versus I think it's 3.6 of tanzine. So they're getting a little bit more drug. That doesn't mean they're, and we'll talk about that too, uh, in the drugstacan arm. Uh, and those are the standard doses. Um, all of these patients, well, 99.6 of them uh, received prior trastuzumab. I don't know why that's not 100 when that's the inclusion criteria. 60% uh, or more had received prior pertuzumab. Um, so about 60% of, of these studies were done in Asia, in an Asian population. 27% uh, in a white population, um, what they say in the demographics, that's about 20%, 21% European, or 20% European, 6% North American. So if you do that, there are only like 16 patients in this study received Ruxtecan in Canada, US, or Mexico. 
uh, and 3% uh, black. About 50-50 hormone positive, hormone negative, and 20% roughly had stable brain meds. They, they had to be stable, uh, uh, you know, active or untreated brain meds, common exclusion criteria. We don't know how, what the percentage of, of brain med patients in the Amelia trial are, um, at least in the major publication that's not reported. Uh, most of these were ECOG zero. Uh, you know, it's a yeah, a pretty decent sample size. And you know, if you are uh, like one of our pharmacy students, you know, when you are, are doing a journal club or reviewing, critiquing article, you always are asked to look at the funder. And of course, this is funded by the Drugstacan Drug Company, which I believe is a Japanese or it's an Asian company. Um, and uh, that's often called a limitation by students. And it could be a limitation, but if it's a if it's a limitation, it's not just because they paid for the study. It's because they did not they designed the study to to kind of put things in their advantage. And one of the common ways they do that is they'll compare uh, you know the drug that they own to uh, you know an inferior uh, control arm. And that's not the case here. Trastuzumab is a good drug. You know it's a solid drug. It's the right comparison here. The dose is right. Given it until disease progression is right. Um, so that's, you know, that's, that's solid here. Um, you know, their primary endpoint is progression-free survival. Boo! This is a metastatic disease. Come on, you can do overall survival. Um, so their, uh, the hazard ratio for progression-free survival is 0.28. Gosh, when you're getting a hazard ratio that's closer to zero than one, you should see those Kaplan-Meier curves separate fast and furious. Um, and they do. I mean, they, they separate a lot and they stay separated during the course of follow-up. It's got a small 95% concept, a narrow 95% concept, you know, 0.22 to 0.37. Um, and, and if you look back at the, the Amelia study, uh, this is often sometimes what you see is that, oh, maybe, you know, the control arm did poor than we expected for whatever reason. Well, the control arm did as well as Amelia, a little bit better than even Amelia. And in, in, um, in the Amelia trial, the uh, the 12 month PFS rate, for uh, uh tanzing was 25%, it looked like here, it's about 30%, so it did a little bit better than maybe it did uh, in the past. Uh, now this is maybe not new information. We had this from from the, the abstract, the oral presentation, I think at ESMO, maybe it was ASCO. We do get the, the overall survival initial data here. I think it's based on like 80 deaths, not very much. Has a ratio of 0.55, okay, I like that. 95% confidence rate of 0.36 to 0.86, so less than one. I like that p-value of 0.007. However, this is an interim analysis, and after this interim analysis, based on the PFS uh, being statistically significant, uh, they ended the study early. Um, but because it's an interim analysis and it's powered for PFS, that's their primary endpoint, they don't have as much alpha for overall survival, so the p-value need for that to be significant is 0.000265. They're at 0.007. Uh, with filler follow-up, I have no doubt that this overall survival will become statistically significant. You know, the 12-month overall survival as a landmark is 94% versus 85.9%. That's that's impressive, and you can start to see the curve separate a little bit. You know, around that around that year mark. Um, really, really impressive. Um, the overall survival, or not the overall survival. The overall response rate was 80% here. Uh, and that's better than the 60% seen in the in the breast 01 study, which is third line. And this is what you would expect if a drug moves from from third line to second line. It should be more active, and we see that with with the response rate. Um, when you look at the subgroup analysis, there's only PFS data. You know, you don't see any any difference by subgroups. Um, the one that uh, 
that I'm interested in here is the previous Pertuzumab. have no difference whether they had it or not. What is missing is a subgroup analysis by region uh, or by ethnicity. Um, since this was primarily done in an Asian population, I practice primarily in a, uh, in a Caucasian uh, population, uh, at least here, and at least in America, you know, uh, there certainly are a significant number of Asians, but ideally for me, I'd like to see those, those demographics mirror our population. And we'll, re we'll circle back to the reason for that uh, later. Um, from a, so anyway, clearly this drug is better in this patient population study. Uh, you see it in the response rate, you see it in the PFS, and you see signs of it in, in the overall survival. Uh, no doubt that it will be statistically significant with time, that overall survival. But even, you know, usually don't see a lot of crossover. Some folks, like 11%, did cross over to see Deruxtecan. You could argue that should be higher since that's what we would do here in practice. Um, but even if, if you discount that, that crossover, such a wide progression-free survival benefit. I mean, 20% of these people have brain meds. Some of these folks are going to go downhill really fast and not be not be well enough to get a third line treatment. So pretty clear evidence it's time to move this to the second line if you haven't done so already. Now, that doesn't mean it doesn't come without uh, its, its warnings and precautions. Uh, I love this. This, actually I hate this. This is medical writing at its worst. This is the introduction to this paper, in the introduction. Uh, they're talking about uh, our drug is so great, uh, it is internalized and selectively cleaved by uh, lysosomal enzymes that are overexpressed in cancer cells, a process that may reduce systemic toxic effects. And they have a couple citations. A process that may. We don't need to say what it, if it will. We have, we have toxicity data, and it's bad for the, for the Durextecan. 43% neutropenia uh, compared to 11% more with Durextecan, 19% of that being grade three or worse compared to 3% with Imtanzine. More vomiting, 44% of people vomited on Durextecan versus just 6% receiving Imtanzine. Alopecia, 36%, a third of these folks are gonna lose their hair or part of their hair compared to none with Trestunab Imtanzine. Um, uh, more diarrhea with Durextecan as well. You'd see more neuropathy with Imtanzine. The, okay, so we're used to dealing with vomiting and, and nausea and neutropenia. That's kind of our thing. doesn't scare us. Uh, but this interstitial lung disease, 10.5% had interstitial lung disease on tresium tanzine, 1% of that being severe. Uh, and you can go into the, the protocol uh, in the supplementary appendix. You can see uh, you know, kind of what they do if you have a, even a grade 1 interstitial lung disease. If it's not resolved by, uh, by day 49, you, you, you got to stop the drug. Um, from there, and for grade two, you're doing you know at least a mg per kg uh, of corticosteroids for for grade two, um, and, and even for grade one, they say consider starting 0.5 mg per kg. This is in the protocol, so you know a 10% toxicity rate may not sound like it's high, but interstitial lung disease is can be pretty severe and and can preclude further treatment with this drug, uh, and it acts, you have to ask the question: if we can't use trastuzumab. Uh, Durextecan, does that mean we can't use trastuzumab and tanzine? Because we can see interstitial lung disease with that, and even just with, with naked trastuzumab. So, so that's a concerning side effect if it affects 10%, because that's one in 10 uh, uh, HER2 amplified breast cancer patients that would get that in your population. All right, so seems to be clearly better uh, and clearly more toxic. All right, so, so why is it better? Well, one reason could be the, uh, you know, trastuzumab deruxtecan has more more bang for your trastuzumab bucket. It has about eight deruxtecan molecules per antibody compared to three and a half on trastuzumab and tanzine. So you are getting more cytotoxic drug 
to the tumor area. Now, of course, some of it breaks off and goes to the bone marrow. That's why you see more myelosuppression with trastuzumab uh, directs to can than trastuzumab imtanzing. Um, another reason uh, could be, you know, all these patients have received prior taxane, which works on microtubules, as does um, trastuzumab uh, imtanzing. But trastuzumab directs to can is a topo isomerase 1 inhibitor. These patients have not seen any topo 1 inhibition, so it may just be a new pharmacologic uh, um, you know, activity that they're not used to. That could be, uh, you know, those, there, there are very, you know, plausible reasons why Durextacan could be better than, uh, than Amtanzine here. Now here's, here's my, my, the only flaw I have, or the only thing I wish we had seen is that this was a more global, uh, population, that it wasn't so heavily, uh, you know, Asian. And, and that is because we have seen this before, and I'll go back to a, a study in the New England Journal of Medicine in 2002 by uh, a Japanese oncology research group looking at cisplatin-irinotecan, a topoisomerase 1 inhibitor, versus cisplatin-etoposide for extensive stage small cell lung cancer. At the time, cis-etoposide was standard of care. In this Japanese study, they found more they found better survival with cis-irinotecan. Median overall survival was 12.8 versus 9.4. P-value is 0.002. Uh, in uh, 2009, a SWA group uh, published their results in, in JCO comparing the same regimens, and they found the exact same overall survival, nine uh, and nine months respectively, no difference. Uh, and the author suggests that the reason that Irinotecan appeared superior in a Japanese patient population and not an American population had to do with UGT1A1 uh, and maybe peak glycoprotein pharmacogenetic differences. And we do know uh, there's a little bit more toxicity uh, in the Asian population that we don't have more UGT1A1 polymorphisms. That could be. Now, despite that, Deruxtecan is metabolized by CYP3435, as is Imtanzine. It's not metabolized by UGT1A1, so, uh, you know, probably we don't have to worry about any pharmacogenomic differences here. Probably. Don't know. But what I would say is if you are at a practice site and say you're looking for a PGY2 oncology project or something like that, uh, and you have given quite a bit of trastuzumab directocan in an American patient population, uh, you know, describe a simple descriptive study of what your toxicity is, what your PFS is, what your overall survival is. You can't make any great comparisons uh, across trial, but if there are, are huge differences uh, in the uh, in a North American patient population, uh, you know that you might be able to see that if you have enough patients in that study. As I, as I mentioned, it looks like only 16 patients in this study received trastuzumab directocan, uh, you know, in North America. So maybe a good topic if you've got a big uh, trastuzumab directocan breast, uh, you know, usage at your practice site. Okay, um, next week is Hopa week for me. I'll be gone. I'll be off to Boston. And um, may have a pod next week, may not, but we'll be back talking, talking more stuff uh, in due time. Uh, thank you, as always, uh, for listening. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at FarmDeatNip, and you can follow the, the podcast on both Twitter and Instagram at OncoFarmPod. And until I talk to you again, remember, doses matter. Mm-hmm.